Think of something you enjoy. Perhaps it's a pursuit, a hobby, maybe it's a thing. Maybe it's your car. That's not it in my case. I've only ever bought one car, and it's getting really old. It could be a favorite shirt, or maybe it's a favorite place or a favorite food. Now, think about the memories you associate with that hobby or shirt or old car. What comes to mind? This being one-way audio, I'm going to have to guess, and my guess is that it's the people you shared that experience or that thing with. Something funny happened with that shirt. Somebody spilled wine on it at a wedding. Or some great family reunion happened at your favorite place. Maybe your first date with your spouse happened over a meal featuring your favorite food. Maybe that's why it's your favorite food. What I'm getting at is community. I love sourdough bread, but really I can only eat so much of it, so why do I keep making more than our freezer can possibly fit? Well, there's the joy of learning. I learn from people who share their experiences and their expertise with me. There's the joy of sharing. I share my bread with friends, with neighbors, with pretty much anyone who will take it. So if you're looking for sourdough and you are anywhere near the sunshine coast of British Columbia, let me know. There's also the joy of talking about sourdough. I talk about it with other people, with community. That's what I'm doing right now. This is a theme I've returned to over and over again on Cheftimony. It's not really about the food, or not all about the food. It's about the people. And today, it's about the sourdough. So let's get started. Talking to chefs, and sometimes lawyers, but always to people who love food. You're listening to the Chef Demoni Podcast. Here's your host, Graham McLennan. Welcome to Friday. It is the end of the week again. And welcome back to Chef Demoni, and thank you, as always, for being here. If you're new to the show, Chef Demoni is my way of staying connected to the culinary world now that I have stopped working in that world professionally. Long story short, I became a lawyer lots of years ago, and then I took some time away from the legal world to cook, and now I'm a full-time lawyer again. On Cheftimony, I talk to people who love food. That's it, really. Usually those people are chefs, but sometimes those people are food-loving lawyers. And today, you will be hearing from people in both of those groups. I'm really, really happy to be bringing you thoughts from several guests who are going to talk about their experiences with sourdough. Keep an ear open while you're listening to them as to just how sourdough has connected my guests to other people. This is also going to be the first of two shows on sourdough. And for both, I'm delighted to be joined by my first ever co-host on Cheftimony, Greg Sugihama. Now, long-time listeners, you already know Greg. He was a guest on episode 6 of the show, and the topic then was leaving the professional culinary world. These days, Greg is a programmer, developer, software professional, but I got to know him when we were both cooking on the line at Vancouver's Burdock & Co. restaurant. And even though he is no longer cooking for a living, Greg still cooks and bakes a lot. He is the friend I turn to with my sourdough questions, and if you have a look at Greg's Instagram account, he is at stretch and fold. I will put a link in the show notes. You'll see why. 
Greg is one of the most interesting people I've met. He knows a ton about cooking and baking. He loves talking about literature and philosophical stuff. And on top of all of that, he understands math and computers, which is starting to seem a little unfair. Anyway, in today's sourdough episode, Greg and I are going to focus on the nuts and bolts of sourdough. So if you are new to this world, this is the episode for you. But we are also going to hear from three other sourdough enthusiasts, including a couple of pros. So no matter what your level of sourdough knowledge and enthusiasm, I think you're going to get something out of today's show. Greg is going to join me again soon when we will hear from more sourdough guests, including a professional baker in Whistler, from someone who produces amazing and beautiful sourdough in the galley kitchen of a boat, and from someone who bakes a whole lot of sourdough in New Mexico. I'm really looking forward to sharing all of these guests with you over the two episodes. So let's get right to it. Here is episode 45, also Sourdough episode 1.0, featuring as co-hosts, yours truly, and Greg Sugiyama. Greg, thank you very much for meeting up virtually as we all must these days. Thanks for being a guest and, well, not just a guest, thanks for being a co-host, the first ever co-host on Chefdemony. Thanks for being here. Wow, thrilled. It's my privilege. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Let's just dive right into it. We're here to talk about sourdough. And I thought because you and I are going to co-host two episodes on this and we've got special guest guests, guest stars on each episode that we'll be listening to, I thought to give a bit of structure to the episodes today, we could talk about more the, the nuts and bolts of making sourdough, what equipment people need, what some of the terminology is, that kind of thing. And then next time around, we'll get uh, a little more philosophical and talk about the existential side of, of sourdough, particularly uh, sourdough during a pandemic. But, but to keep it practical today, let's, let's start by talking about the simplicity of sourdough, because really it's just three ingredients. You've got flour, water, and salt, and that's it really. And then some separate flour and water that has cultured a, cultured a starter, some yeast and some bacteria. Do you think it's because sourdough is so simple that it is the challenge that it is? You know, whenever you get into simplicity, there is a lot of room for refinement. And I think, I think because something is so naked, inherently, it's, there's, a, there's a greater range of variability. I'm Japanese, and I grew up with a lot of uh, Japanese traditions and cultures, which are at their root really simple. But, uh, you know, my, my grandmother was big into ikebana, which is the art of arranging flowers. And that is very, very simple on the outset. But, you know, she she was doing it for her entire life. And I couldn't I couldn't even aspire to ever produce something that looked uh, to the standard that she would she would produce. So I've always had that appreciation for perfection and simplicity. As for sourdough, I think I think that might be a part of it. I think what a lot of people found, especially because of the pandemic, was it may have just been a muscle that they weren't exercising necessarily. And by muscle, I mean culinary applications in general, just cooking, like preparing for yourself and making something from scratch without really having a firm guideline. Because there is, as you know, a fair amount of variability in what a loaf of sourdough is, what it looks like, what it smells like, tastes like, etc. Yeah, it's interesting. What 
however simple sourdough is, it, it reminds me of this quote from a yoga teacher that I heard years and years ago, which was simple does not mean easy. And somebody else had said, getting in shape is really simple. You just eat a healthy diet and you exercise a lot, but that doesn't mean it's easy. <laughs> it's Far so, from it. <laughs> far from it, especially during a pandemic. Before we get into some of our experiences and some of our guests' experiences for people who are new to the world of sourdough, let's talk about some terminology because I think like any pursuit, it can, even though it is, I think, quite simple, any pursuit has got its own language and uh, it sounds, it can sound, I think, a bit daunting. So let's just go through some of the things here. Let's, let's start with the starter. What is it? So a starter, uh, this is this is where I get the most confusion uh, from from newer newer bakers or people looking to get into sourdough. I find there's a fair amount of confusion when I use the words uh, leaven, pre-ferment, starter. People generally have this uh, preconception that they're separate things when they're essentially just different stages of the same thing. It's it's fermented flour, which is a combination of water and flour. And the natural yeasts around it, and they, through the magic of fermentation, come together and produce something lovely and bubbly. And then, if you let it go too far, it gets quite acidic, produces all that acetic acid, and you have something that smells a little bit like vinegar. But those are all varying degrees of starter, and that's something that I try to really drive home with people who are trying to learn. Is when I say leaven, I'm referring to a specific period of time in the lifespan of a starter where you want to be using it to leaven bread. When you say that when it goes a little long, what I'm trying to do now is refresh my starter, feed my starter twice a day. If I don't do that and I leave it for a day or two or three, it's still alive. But that's when it sort of collapses and it becomes much more watery. And then what is producing it? It's actual acid in there that's producing that acidic effect. I'm a doctor, so you can trust me. As far as as far as I understand, it's acetic acid. So it is a it is a byproduct of the fermentation. And that's why it has that kind of acetone smell to it. It can end up smelling very pungent and sour, like vinegar. And I'm sure as most people have discovered in their adventures with sourdough starter, if you leave it too long, it'll actually produce a layer a layer of alcohol on the top. People used to call it hooch, I think. I, I believe that was the term. Uh, and it was, it was cheap liquor. <laughs> it was a, I don't know if it's sanitary or safe to drink, but it was definitely a thing for some people. Yeah, and that's that's just through the magic of fermentation. You know, it'll eventually go that far. In the same way that the wild yeast on the skin of uh, fruit, at, on the initial onset, will turn into like a sweeter juice and it'll smell like, you know, a young wine and then it'll smell more wine-like. And then if you leave it to ferment, it'll start to smell like vinegar. The same process is happening within your container of flour and water. And and 11 is at, at a specific stage, as you said, when you're going to start, when you're going to incorporate it into the other ingredients. And so let's come to those other ingredients now. And there's a there's a term, a very French sounding term, autolyse, autolyse, some people say. What is that? And how does it relate to the leaven that you're going to use in your bread? So there's, there's terms that I like to use when I'm talking about the, the qualities of a dough. Like strength is is what I mean the, the the elasticity the overall quality of the dough to be able to hold itself together the elasticity of the dough uh, that's what most people understand gluten to be is this structure there's there's another characteristic that gluten will impart because it is a protein and there's all these matrices that form when flour is hydrated and initially as you you may have noticed when you're mixing doughs it's kind of like a shaggy mess with very little shape and form but then through this autolyse process you end up with with something that is 
not necessarily strong, but it's uh, definitely extensible, which means it has this quality to be able to to uh, stretch to great degrees. You will notice that there's very little resistance coming back, but it also isn't tearing on you as easily. Uh, and that extensibility is a very important quality in sourdough. It's what's going to help give your dough a little bit of shape, give you the ability to actually shape it and stretch it and fold it over on itself uh, to reinforce that gluten strength. But at, at its base, as I understand it, the autolyse just allows those gluten networks to kind of start forming and then collapse into each other into a more natural shape, which is in alignment. So think about layering a bunch of you know strands of muscle on top of each other instead of having them as a jumbled knot when they're in alignment they they, they have more of that elastic or pardon me uh, extensibility which is good for the final product of your startup and in, in a very simple way autolyse is what here's how i understand it it's me mixing flour and water and letting it sit for a while yeah absolutely and there's not there's nothing more to it uh, and you'll notice that that method is used outside of sourdough over the pandemic, I've been getting really into hand-pulled noodles. So old Chinese techniques for making noodles make very good use of the auto leaves because the, the doughs are all characterized by this ability to stretch to these long strands and you have these glorious noodles. And if you tried doing that with a dough that you had just mixed, it was it would be this hard ball of flour. But you know, you give it a couple hours and you have something that's very malleable and workable. And to that, then you add your leaven. And you add, and then what else goes in? Then and then the salt, and you're pretty much ready to go into the strengthening of the dough. But before we get there and into the into the folding and the strengthening of the dough, let's talk about how we figure out how much of each of these ingredients to put into our sourdough recipes. And what I'm coming to here is something that I still don't fully understand. I understand the concept, but I don't. My my brain is not a mathematical one. I am told it's very helpful as you want to move from one recipe to another or to scale a recipe. But Greg, please tell us in simple terms for me, what are Baker's percentages or Baker's math? So I think Baker's percentages are a little confusing at first for a lot of uh, people because in Canada, we have this strange hybrid between the metric and imperial systems for measurement. You know, we'll have cups per milliliter or some, something like that, which is just strange. And a scale isn't commonly found, I think, in most household kitchens, but they're cheap and it's a good investment and they're consistent, which is my argument for them. Specifically with regards to a baker's percentage, we're talking about relative weight in regards to the total amount of flour in a recipe. So for example, we use a nice round number, 100. 1% of 100 is one, 10% is 10. So if you have a recipe that calls for 100 grams of flour, that would be 100%. So anything else given to you in a percentage of that total number will be your baker's percentage. So say if you have, you, you hear the word hydration thrown around quite a bit. If a recipe is at you know, 75% hydration and you have 100 grams of flour as your total weight, then that means 75% of that 100 would be 75. So you would have 75 grams of water. And, and you, you hit the nail on the head there with scalability. Uh, the ability to scale those recipes uh, is very helpful. It's a little difficult to go from a cup and three quarters to you know, how many I need for, you know, a hundred loaves. Whereas if you know a loaf is going to be 500 grams of flour, you just multiply that by your factor of scale and you, you, you have a scaled recipe. So I, I, and I may be oversimplifying this because I am a mathematical person at heart. So this is very simple to me, but I definitely have also had to explain this in different ways to other people because it doesn't 
come as intuitively. No, that does make sense to me. And every time somebody does explain it to me, it makes sense in the moment. And then I go back to, uh, I have to admit, a mild amount of confusion when I, when I look at a recipe. Anyway, I find it can get confusing, but it's probably me needing to spend more time with the math books. Let's let's get into the into the strengthening. So once we've got the autolyse, which is the flour and water mixed together, we've added our leaven, which is simply a starter at a specific point in its life cycle when it's uh, going to have its best shot at leavening that bread well. We've added the salt in. What else do we have to do before we pop that loaf into the oven? So... It takes time, and this is where this is where I also find a lot <laughs> a lot of difficulty with trying to teach sourdough to um, the uninitiated. I might say uh, is that it's it's difficult to work into your schedule if you're not expecting it to be you know this time investment. Luckily, and I think one of the reasons why it took off so well in the pandemic is because you're all at home. Everyone's at home all day, all the you have time. Nothing, you have nothing to do but watch this bread. And I mean, it, it takes like 36 hours to produce a loaf, but it's maybe an hour total of active time. The rest of it is just sitting and waiting, but through the magic of time and temperature control, you, you end up with a product that has a higher portion of pre-fermented flour, which is not only healthy and it produces a bounty of naturally occurring vitamins, it, it tastes great. You look at the quality of these artisanal sourdough loaves and the color that you can get on a crust, you know, and that caramelization doesn't happen with a loaf that's been fermented for an hour with commercial yeast. You you will burn well before you get into that to that quality. I mean, if we're ta- getting specific, it's just technically a fourth ingredient, flour, water, salt, and time. Fair enough. We'll come to time and, um, and one other factor that I'll, I'll, I'll wait a little longer to... Um, to dive into because some of our guests today talk about it. Walk us through, if you would, bulk fermentation, what that is, and then what you do next in terms of shaping. Some recipes call for virtually all, I would think, call for pre-shaping. Tell us what that is. So so walk us through bulk, pre-shaping, shaping, getting it into the oven. Right. So there's, there's a fair amount of ritual surrounding this. And this is where it starts to get murky for some because there's no definitive resource on how this needs to be done. There's no authority. I think the prevailing method that most people are generally familiar with is the tartine method, which is a slow ferment, but it's a it's a relatively short autolyse with leaven included, which is something I've moved away from, followed by a four-ish hour bulk fermentation period. And then uh, that's followed by a long cold fermentation in the fridge overnight. A lot of the intent behind that recipe was to make it as as accessible to as many people as possible. It definitely is the easiest to fit in a schedule, I would find, because the, the cold bulk fermentation can be the thing you do and you throw it in as you go to sleep and then you wake up in the morning and you make your bread off before you go to work. But let's let's break that down a little bit. So the terms when I'm saying bulk fermentation is that is your, generally speaking, your warmer fermentation to be specific, I room temperature or like 21 to 23 degrees centigrade or 75 degrees Fahrenheit around there. And that is where you're going to be performing uh, stretch stretches and folds. And that is that is strengthening. So as I mentioned earlier, gluten tends to strengthen as it aligns. You get these strands of gluten in uh, in alignment with each other will give you much greater degree of strength and elasticity uh, and extensibility. Um, and that's all you're doing with the stretch and fold. As the dough continues to hydrate, you're constantly realigning and just folding aligned layers of strengthened dough on top of each other. And uh, it's exponential. So if you double it over on itself, you have two layers and you have four layers and you have eight layers and 16 layers or 
yeah, pardon me, eight times eight, 64 uh, layers of, uh, I'm mathematical, remember, um, <laughs> layers of strength and dough. And it, it gets to a point where you have this very strong and extensible dough. And that's kind of uh, where you want to be. And what I always try to describe it as is it's a balancing act between time is you, you have a finite amount of time where you can ferment dough at a room at a warm temperature before it will over ferment. And in that time, you want to give it an appropriate amount of strengthening. So uh, in summer months, for example, you can't necessarily control your temperature to a degree, which is one of the variables, but you can definitely control the amount of time you ferment and you can control the amount of strengthening you give your dough. So if you have to lower the time, then that means you need to increase the intensity and the volume of your stretches and folds to, accom to accommodate for that uh, shortening in time. And then it's kind of like a give, take, push, pull with any of those other factors. So as one increases or decreases, the others may increase or decrease proportionately. But that, that's a bulk fermentation. At its simplest, it's just a warm fermentation that happens relatively quickly, relatively speaking to the entire process. And then the next, the next stage to happen is you have a fermented dough that you're going to uh, shape. So there's, there's two terms you'll usually hear thrown around when we're talking about shaping. Uh, the pre-shape, which is, as it sounds, literally the pre-shape. You are, you are shaping your dough into a ball that has a nice tight skin, which maintains a bunch of tension, which will eventually be the top of your loaf, and that you're, you're getting it ready to shape. So you're, you're performing a pre-shape before your real shape. Uh, and then that is followed by usually a, a moderate rest just to, give, to, to relax the gluten so it, you're not fighting the dough. Because you, you do want to be relatively gentle at this stage because you've developed a, you know, a nice network of air and fermentation. And, you know, we're all about that open crumb. Yes. And then, then you perform like a, a shape. So the, the actual shape, and again, this is where I think a lot of confusion uh, arises is there's a million different ways to do this. You can find, you can find many, many different methods on YouTube, most of which are going to be adequate. You are essentially just shaping the dough in on itself to layer and align your dough to direct the eventual rise of your bread. So what I was mentioning with the pre-shape, you have this taut outer skin. You want to kind of direct the growth upwards. So you get that, uh, what is called oven spring, that nice growth in your bread. So you don't end up with a flat pancake. Most methods are pretty sufficient at achieving this. So people tend to worry a lot about their shaping. And I would say worry the least about it, worry the most, worry the most about getting proper fermentation and strength developing your dough. And then everything else after that is 90% aesthetics. And so once it's shaped, and, and the method that you mentioned as being probably the most popular, and I think I agree with you, is from Tartine, which is a bakery in San Francisco, and Chad Robertson, who's kind of a sourdough guru, I would say, just so people have that reference. So now we've done the pre-shaping, we've done the shaping, and then this is the, the cold proofing time. Oh, sorry. And I, I wanted to go back to the stretching and folding. You know, when people think about bread, people who are not into sourdough or not yet into sourdough may wonder why we are stretching and folding this dough as opposed to just kneading it. And is that simply a function of the high hydration and the fact that you'd just make a mess all over your countertop if you were to try to knead it in a, in a way similar to a, a, a traditionally yeasted bread or a traditionally commercially yeasted bread? So that question, first of all, and then 
a related question because it's such high hydration, because it's so loose as a dough, even after we've given it strength and structure, what do you do before you put it in the fridge to, to give it its best shot at uh, retaining shape? Right. So let's unpack that. There's a couple of questions there. The first being, what are the benefits of a long stretch and hold process for dough strengthening versus an initial intensive kneading? As I understand, and as I've experienced, doughs built with that initial intensive kneading will develop a lot of uh, gluten, granted, but they won't necessarily develop that extensibility that we're talking about and that we're looking for, which eventually will result in that open crumb or that uh, that texture, that custardy texture that we're used to in our sourdough, because that is eventually air expanding inside of a gluten network and not tearing because it's extensible enough to stand up to that pressure of growth. I have tried before to do just a dough where you knead it like crazy and then shape it and put it in the fridge and let it ferment for 24 hours. And you end up with something much similar to Bannock. Like it's very dense. (laughs) It's it's dense. It doesn't rise. It doesn't have the same chew and pull that you get out of that you get out of a nice structured sourdough and there there are plenty of methods for making bread that involve just an initial knead and then that's kind of it and you leave it but that process of lamination through stretches and folds will give you a nicer product it'll have better texture it'll look nicer it'll rise better and then the uh the second question the that was about the the cold fermentation yeah, the cold fermentation. And and really what I'm getting at here is Banneton and um, and Boules and why you don't just sling the, sling the shaped bread into the fridge. Right. So the cold fermentation, as I was mentioning earlier, with these factors, time, uh, temperature, and uh, your physical intervention, be that stretching and folding, kneading, etc., uh, you are now altering one of those variables. So you are taking your temperature and you are dropping it to fridge temperatures. Uh, at, at those temperatures, yeast is almost dormant, but it is still active enough to slowly ferment. So all that means is we decrease temperature, we need to increase the other variable, which is time. So now we are extending time. So cold fermentations will not produce nearly as much acetic acid as a, like a hot fermentation will. But what you are allowing the dough to do is slowly break down a lot of the gluten and grains into, into pre-fermented or fermented grain producing sugars, producing vitamins as we got into, and you, you end up with something that tastes and looks and rises much different. If you're ever wondering what that's like, try following an identical method. Make make two loaves of dough, take one, shape it, and then let it rise on your counter for an additional hour and then bake it right away and take the other loaf and ferment it overnight. And it's it's a substantial difference in color, crust, texture, and overall flavor. It's qualitatively better it's measurably better and if you have the time i highly suggest that you always make sure you give your your doughs a nice long rest in the bridge overnight and they are sleeping in again this is for people who are very new to it but they're sleeping in baskets basically right mm-hmm. yeah so okay. these baskets uh banatons there's, there's a bunch of names for them usually referring to the shape like a bull will be i think what most people might be familiar with is this round shape usually a cane basket something that's not going to mold on you lined with cloth that has been floured if you don't have one, you can use a round bowl with a dish towel that you have floured up. Just be aware you will make a mess and this cloth will need a thorough cleaning. I'm not going to say it doesn't matter because it does. If you're, if you're really trying to perfect this art and you, you, you know, the shape, the final shape and the final resting place of your dough is going to have a big impact on the final product. But if you're looking for something that's edible and that has the shape of bread, 
use a bowl, use a large measuring bowl, line it with a cloth. I mean, hell, we did that at Burdock for a while before we had banatons. We were using stainless steel bowls to to rest our sourdough overnight. But uh, yeah, so you'll if if you ever hear about a sourdough basket, that's that's generally what people are talking about—a bowl or a banaton—and they they rest in the fridge overnight, top side down, into the basket, uh, and then generally covered with saran or a damp cloth, just so it doesn't dry out because your fridge is a very dry place. Uh, and then that way in the, the morning or the next day, when you go to bake your bread, you are inverting your basket onto a floured surface. And then that way you don't have to handle it and muss it and mess it up because you spent all this time developing this lovely shape and open structure full of air pockets, zero intervention or minimal intervention. And then you can just flip, invert, score, bake, and that will give you the nicest shape and rise. Well, let's talk before we get to our guests, Greg, just a, a bit more about the equipment that people will need. And to your point, you don't really need a lot to try it, right? You need, a, you basically need a jar of some description to keep your starter in. Uh, you need something to hold the shape of the dough. You need a scale, as you pointed out earlier, a cheap piece of equipment, very important. The other one that I think is, and I'm learning increasingly how important it is at every stage of the process, is a thermometer. And this was the ingredient I referenced earlier because I've, I've read that we should treat temperature as an ingredient. So getting a, getting a quick read digital thermometer, I think, is a, is a huge part of the equation. And maybe you could comment a little bit more on that, on the, on the importance of temperature throughout. We've talked about it already in terms of the, the bulk fermentation and cooling things down. But should I be monitoring the temperature of my dough? And I guess in a perfect world, I am. It's not going to ruin it if I'm not. I just need to pay attention to how the dough is developing and, and then decide based on the relative temperature, how much time to give it. Is that right? So temperature is important. And I'm definitely not going to stand here and say that it's not. In a perfect world, everyone would be keeping temperature logs, visual journals, photos if they could. Uh, but <laughs> I, I would say I would say the one yes. non-negotiable, the one non-negotiable, you know, if you're going to, the one non-negotiable thing you need for sourdough is a scale. I would say it's it's much easier to wing it, so to speak, with, a stainless steel bowl or a, a ceramic bowl with a cloth and relative practice and judgment with what fermented dough looks and smells like uh, it's it's much more difficult to accurately measure amounts of flour and water without a scale so the scale would definitely be number one i would say get a thermometer before a banneton i mean if you really have to choose between the two they're relatively inexpensive but if your situation is that you you can only do one or the other a cheap thermometer i think will do you better just to understand final dough temperatures as a as a part of the process because it, your, your dough will warm up as it ferments as it's part of that activity that uh, microbial activity that's happening will produce heat as a byproduct but you are also looking to kind of maintain as consistent a temperature to get as consistent results as possible that is a thing that a lot of people come to me with as a uh, as a problem is they'll say well you know i followed this recipe one day and i fermented for four hours and it turned out great and then the next day i fermented for four hours and my dough was a puddle at the end of you know my fermentation process and the variable there most of the time is just you know temperature it could have been cloudy yeah, and rainy room temperature yeah in the middle of spring and you have a super humid muggy day in april and then the next day it's, it's blazing hot and dry it makes a big difference in the quality of your dough and the overall fermentation process. So temperature is important for that. And I mentioned a log and it seems really nerdy, but I 
keep a log. You don't have to be as concise as maybe some others are. I know like I'm, you know, I'm a programmer, so I'm, I love data and I love, I love keeping data around. So I keep a very concise log temperatures, volume, like volumetric measurements, but then qualitative measurements as well, like what it looks like, what it smells like. Uh, I keep it digitally as well, so I'll attach photos to it. But that's for my reference. You can keep temp. I think, I would think that does not sound nerdy at all, just just so you know. <laughs> but also, like I, I've been doing this so long and for so often, it's much easier for me to also just wing it and just make a loaf of sourdough and not really pay as much attention to the finer details and still end up with a product that's relatively good. Whereas I think when you're learning, it's training. You need to be able to associate what properly fermented dough looks like. And the more metrics you have to be able to, to make a value judgment by looking at something, the, the more consistent your sourdough will be. So on initially, you're, you're not going to know and you just won't know. The only way you'll know is by baking. You'll bake and you keep notes. That loaf was garbage. Bake and you keep notes. That loaf was better. Like, what did I do differently? And it, it's beneficial to be able to go back and say, oh, well, the, the temperature was significantly different. And the temperature over my period of fermentation was different. And then, you know, you take that same method and your next loaf turns out horribly again. And then you realize, well, oh, I fermented for the same amount of time, but the temperature was significantly hotter or significantly colder. Maybe that has something to do with my, my overall quality of my product. And it, just through tinkering and through experimentation and expertise that grows from trial and error, you will get to a point where this is second nature and you will also just be able to sling dough like a like an old French baker. Like an old pro. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point that the people who make it look effortless, uh, as I guess with just about any pursuit in life, they, they make it look effortless because of the thousands of hours they put in in the years leading up to that. Makes sense. Okay, just a couple of more things that I want to talk about in terms of equipment and process, and then we'll get on to our guests. The last couple that I can think of are scoring and then baking. So please just walk us through both of those, both in terms of process and, and again, in terms of uh, necessary equipment. Right. So this is where people really get to flex. Uh, they, there, there are some artists when it comes to scoring. They, they're painting the Mona Lisa on loaves of bread and uh, it, I'm not that type of person at, at its base scoring serves a purpose. It's more than just function or more than just aesthetics. It serves a function. Uh, what you're creating is a open seam in your dough and just through physics, your air, the air that is steam is produced by baking sourdough and that steam is going to rise. And that rise is going to be directed towards the path of least resistance, which will be the, the split in your dough. So you're aiding your you're aiding and directing that steam to rise upwards. And so you, you end up with a, a nicer shape in your dough. If you ever want to see this in action, score the side of your loaf and you will burst out the side. It needs to follow that path. So generally you will see with like artisanal loaves, if people are getting creative with the design, there will still be one directional score, which will generally be on the top. And then all the tiny accent details will be incidental, not really affecting the rise, but definitely affecting the overall look and a finished product. For that, you just need a, a razor blade, a loose razor blade. Go to your local drugstore, buy a pack of razor blades, and they will last you forever. Just handle them carefully. I, I used yeah, to oh, yeah, yeah. Until, <laughs> yeah, until until I finally bought a lamb, which is the purpose-built tool, which is really just a handle that holds a razor blade. Uh, I just used my chef knife for years and years. And uh, I'm sure it was, uh, I'm sure purists would have some difficulty with it, but it worked. 
I mean, it depends how studious you are about keeping your knife sharp. I've met yes. chefs who have very dull knives and I would not recommend. But then also, <laughs> if you have a sharp knife, you're, yeah, that's all you need. A, a sharp metal instrument is, razor blades just tend to fit the bill for cheap, which is, I think, why they've universally kind of been adopted as the de facto the, the standard tool. The world over. Now, what do you put your bread into? And it's not simply the oven. And what, what thoughts and, and perhaps recommendations do you have on that? Right. So this is... There's a large range for variability here. Traditionally, these loaves were baked in wood fire ovens. Now, wood fire ovens do a couple things really well. They retain heat because you have meters, usually of solid masonry, just stone that has been preheated for days and is absorbing heat and radiating heat energy back at your bread. You get these fantastic temperatures. They also, because they're stone, hold moisture in very, very well. You can throw water into these hot ovens and it will absorb into the stone. But then also the water and steam produced by the baking loaves of bread will kind of stay present in the sealed environment. That gives you or serves a couple of functions. Steam or a moisture rich environment will allow your dough to, to rise to a sufficient standard before browning, before it starts to overly caramelize on the outside. If you put your loaf right away into a very dry oven, it's going to brown and harden on the outside before it can finish its, its rise potential. So you'll end up with generally denser loaves that are flatter or more flat with it, which with a much thicker crust. And it's, it, it's not, it won't be bad, but it's not necessarily as nice. Too much thick crust is hard on the, hard on the jaws. You know, you want something that has a nice balance between the two. I bake in a Dutch oven. I have a couple that I use. I, I really enjoy my enameled cast or my enameled cast iron, which you know, it looks beautiful, brings me joy to stare at it, but also <laughs> it, it, it seals in moisture very well. So the general method to replicate what you would get out of a, a wood-fired oven or a steam-injected oven is you take a Dutch oven, which is an enameled pot or a cast iron pot with a lid, put it in your oven, turn it on as hot as it'll get. I don't care what your temperature says. If you have a probe, you can measure it, but just most residential ovens are going to hit about 450 degrees but crank it all the way to 500 or 550 if it goes that high and preheat your baking vessel for an hour, usually is sufficient, a long, a long time to get it hot. And very carefully after that point of time, take it out of the oven and you will feel heat radiating off of this. Uh, the reason why I recommend a Dutch oven is because they are thick and they, they absorb heat quite well. And they retain heat energy and they radiate it back into the bread. So you're kind of mimicking that environment. Then you're going to take that, you're going to put your loaf in, score it, put it in the Dutch oven, put the lid on, and bake it for the initial part of your bake. And uh, that's going to vary. That's You're just going to have to experiment with that in your oven. It depends how hot your oven is, how good your Dutch oven is. For me, every time I've moved, because I live in Vancouver and I rent, it's been a, you get a, to know a new oven. Because you get to know a new oven. Exactly. But then the degree of control you'll have once you once you learn the quirks of your oven will be very high. I know a bunch of bakers that bake commercially and that unless they have a hyper precise steam injected oven, you have so much more control over an individual loaf inside of a Dutch oven. And they're not overwhelmingly expensive. Most people tend to have them in their home. And if you don't, you don't necessarily have to go the, the Le Creuset enameled road. You can buy a large cast iron Dutch oven for under a hundred dollars. And aside from being good for baking bread, it's good for everything else you want to everything create. else you yeah. do with the dutch oven i would say you should probably have one if you own a, if you live somewhere and cook your own food you should have <laughs> should have one 
Well, listen, Greg, I think it's time to hear from our guests. So let's go first to Nicole Oltzman. I don't know Nicole personally, got to know her a little bit through this process. She's a friend of a friend. And uh, she has a background similar to mine, I guess. She's a, she's a practicing lawyer who is interested in food, became interested in sourdough. Well, we'll hear it. Let's just hear from Nicole. Hi, my name is Nicole Olsman, and today I'd like to tell you a little bit about myself and my adventures in sourdough. So my day job, I'm a corporate lawyer for a uh, large um, engineering construction company. And how sourdough came in my life was really because of COVID. So during the lockdown, I was thinking about bread and how I could feed my family without having to go to the grocery store every day. Now, my husband comes from a long history of bakers in Holland. And I thought, hey, I can do this. So I looked up sourdough and figured out that, you know, it w wasn't really that bad. But um, when I started to do it, I have to say that every day was almost a failure uh, for X, Y, and Z reasons. But I persevered. And two months later, I now can say that I have Instagram-worthy sourdough bread. A tip for newbies, I guess. Um, so one of the things that really, really made the sourdough work is uh, there's two things. One is obviously a very strong starter. And the very strong starter, and uh, what I mean by that, is to ensure that you feed it twice a day. I was doing it only once a day, um, and my results weren't that great. So I started to do it twice a day. And also, um, the other thing that really made a difference was putting some ice underneath the paper. So right before you put the lid on your Dutch oven, um, I would throw two cubes of ice, one on each side, underneath the paper that's holding your dough, and slam the, the uh, lid shut as quick as possible without burning yourself. And with that little trick, I found that uh, I got a really big rise. The crumb was great. It was really quite um, tintillating when I opened that pot. So what else can I say about sourdough? I, I guess I never knew the ups and downs uh, of... Uh, happiness and sadness that I felt with each sourdough because I use a Dutch oven and um, you can't see inside the Dutch oven. So for the first 25 minutes, I'm just hoping and praying. And once I lift that lid up, I would either shout for joy or I would be very sad because you could see the rise or the fall of that dough. I think that uh, after the uh, two and a half months trial period, I found out that um, I shouldn't be so uh, focus on having that Instagram worthy bread. It's really, really about the taste and the texture. And as I said, my uh, husband comes from a long line of bakers, and he was the biggest uh, critic. He would often come by and say, oh, maybe you should use less water when he saw that my bread was flat. Not sure the basis of that comment, but uh, truth be told, it was easier to start with a lower percentage. I think that you know, um, the one, the percentage that really um, started my journey uphill or to success was about 75%. So I'm hoping that uh, this small little uh, discussion has given you some thoughts about how to pursue the adventures in sourdough. I guess the one other thing I would leave everyone with is that uh, I'm a really busy lawyer with two young kids, and yet I still try to make sourdough almost every day. And I guess it's my quest to perfection. So no matter how busy you are, we can always make time to make some sourdough. Thank you. So a couple of things that I, I loved about Nicole's thoughts on sourdough, she uh, straight up acknowledged what happens, I think, to all of us. Early efforts were failures. 
Um, mm-hmm. But she's now got some Instagram-worthy bread. Her recommendations, some I have tried, one I haven't yet, but let's talk about that strong starter, feeding it twice a day. We touched on this a little bit earlier, but but your thoughts on that? What is the benefit to that? It's necessary. Uh, so I had this experience where I was working in a restaurant and I was tasked with baking sourdough and introducing sourdough as part of the menu and rotation of things we were making in this restaurant. Um, so I brought a a clone of my sourdough or a seed, whatever we're calling it, to the restaurant and proceeded to make sourdough with it. And lo and behold, what I noticed over time was the sourdough I was I was making at this restaurant turned out better. I was using the same grains. I was using the same flours at home and in the restaurant, and it was the same starter. The biggest variable was the frequency of feeding because it was a thing that was being refreshed every day. It was being fed in the morning, it was being fed at night, and it was being made into a leaven over and over and over again. It was main, and it's, it was maintaining a, a better pH. It smelled better, it smelled sweet, it didn't smell acidic. And when I would get to home, you know, I'd feed my sourdough starter once a day, and coming up to the weekends, I would kind of maybe feed it twice the day before, but, you know, it always aired on the side of acidic it would smell a little bit more acidic not disgustingly so but definitely not as sweet and neutral as the sourdough at work and that just speaks to that keeping your sourdough starter happy feeding it consistently catching it and feeding it before it starts to produce a lot of those acetic acids i think is important ph in your bread is going to be important so the final product will be influenced by the ph of your pre-fermented flour what she said is very spot on. Also, what she said about having a very busy schedule and kids is uh, interesting because this is definitely one of those things that gets more difficult the more busy your schedule gets. So I, I feel for anyone who says that this is a difficult time investment, but uh, also kudos to her, two kids and baking sourdough at the same time. just seems like a handful. <laughs> busy job. Yeah, yeah. She's doing it all. Tell us your thoughts, Greg, on the ice trick. I haven't done this, but uh, to your point earlier, the, one of the points of using the Dutch oven is to trap, I think, as much uh, steam as possible in a, in a small area to make it mimic the traditional stone oven. I've never tried that. Ice underneath the, she talks about putting ice underneath the paper, and that would be, I think, the parchment paper that is used to transition the loaf into the Dutch oven and into the oven. Thoughts on that process? So... I've heard I've heard of people doing this before. I've heard of other methods of getting something similar. I've never done this just because I I've always had like a really good efficient Dutch oven, something that's very good at maintaining moisture. Uh, but Maurizio, who's who's going to be on later on his blog, he outlines a similar process where you're not using ice, but he has a tray of porous stones in the bottom of an oven that he will cover in cover in water, which will evaporate and create steam. So it, it gives a similar effect. All she's doing is is adding an extra amount of water that will, A, not create a puddle for your sourdough to sit in. It'll go from, it'll almost sublimate at that temperature. It'll go from solid to liquid very quick, or gas, pardon me, very yeah, quickly. Right. So that's that's the purpose of the ice. Uh, either or, uh, I've also heard of people using a, uh, a spritz bottle with a very fine spritz, and just before shutting the lid on their Dutch oven, they will give a quick spritz of water inside of, inside of the cast iron just to help maintain that moisture-rich environment. How about the hydration percentage that Nicole talked about? I thought that was interesting. And, that, and that's something I've experienced myself is dialing back a little bit on the hydration because if it gets too high, it just gets really difficult for beginners anyway to work with. She's spot on. 
if you want to chase high hydration, really open crumb Instagrammy bread, you're going to need to a have really good grains. You're going to need to understand the autolyse process to a higher degree than most beginners will. You're going to need to accommodate for that autolyse. Generally, higher hydration doughs will need higher percentages of good whole grains. Uh, and that will also require a longer, longer autolyse, better control over your shaping. She mentioned 75%, and I've also found that to be the magic number. Even if I'm entertaining guests, and I'm, I'm going to, I mean, when I was entertaining guests, pardon me. <laughs> uh, yes, back in the day. If I, if I had to make multiple loaves and I just needed them to be consistent and to I needed work. them to be good, 75% is the percentage I would go to. 75% hydration, 10% whole grain, 90% white flour. And that was that is a very solid, solid ratio, which is also popularized, I think, by the tartine method. That is, I think that's the ratio they go with as well. But then if I'm, you know, if I'm looking for like crazy flavor and really looking to expand, you know, you can, you can experiment with the hydration, but uh, I would say, no, stick with 75% if you're beginning and perfect it. Just get really good at working in that range. That's, and then yeah, you will- 75% yeah. bread and then move it up. Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. Let's go next, Greg. East, we're within Canada this time, but we are going to go uh, to uh, Centennial College or to one of the professors from Centennial College. And we're going to hear now from Chef Matthew James Duffy. Hi, my name is Matthew Duffy. I'm currently a baking professor and coordinator of the Baking and Pastry Arts Management Program of Centennial College. Um, I've got over a decade of cooking experience. I've worked in high-end bakeries, restaurants, uh, traveled a lot, and everywhere I've been working has sort of come back to bread. Sourdough became really important in my life. Over a decade ago, I started baking in one restaurant that I was working in. Um, it was sort of the daily routine to get in, mix the dough. Um, we would go through the process every day, and I really just fell in love with the process. I think that there's this really satisfying humbling feel when you pull a loaf of bread out of the oven. It's such a simple combination of ingredients combined with temperature and time that can create such an amazing product and can be so diverse. A couple of tips I always tell people, um, I, I generally tell everyone, you know, absolutely you need a scale and a thermometer. You can mix doughs by hand. You can do a lot of different fermentation processes and schedules, but a, a Scale is highly important so that you can be accurate. Um, you can also take better notes on what you've done so that you can grow and you can develop your baking. A thermometer is also very important, especially because people are in such different climates that this way you can really dial in your baking for your environment. I still, so I've been baking sourdough for over a dozen years. I baked my first loaf in 2006, I believe. And I still take the temperature of every single dough that I make and I record every dough. So every time I make a bread, I write down the formula, um, a quick baker's percentage. I write down the temperatures, the dough schedule. And that way what I can do is on the next bake, I can reflect back. Were my temperatures accurate? How were my times? Um, this really has helped me develop as a baker and get really consistent good results. So one experience that I wouldn't have had uh, without sourdough, I mean, is just the general network of friends that I've got. Last year, I was lucky enough to travel to Germany to work with a German master baker in his bakery. I've been in San Francisco, Vermont, 
the West Coast of Canada, New York City, Italy, Japan, and I've been able to work in all these great little bakeries and really meet some fascinating and amazing people. There's so many different ways to make this bread and there's so many traditions behind different backgrounds. For example, in Germany, I was learning about breads I'd never seen before and I find it just really so, so thrilling. It's so cool to learn a new skill, to see how other people shape a loaf, how they manage fermentation, what type of flour do they use. Um, and I find it overall, it really brings people together. Not only from a from a sense in person, but I've also found that sourdough brings people together digitally. Uh, there's a lot of great resources out there. I've made a lot of great friends in the baking world, uh, people that I can ask questions to, and then they return the questions to me. I find it just a great way to share uh, a passion with everyone. I really wish when I first started out, I had the resources I have today. I mean, there wasn't as many cookbooks. There was definitely not as many internet resources. There wasn't as many blogs. Now it's really easy to find a sourdough recipe, a sourdough discard recipe. Um, as much as I try to bake other people's recipes, I don't have as much time as I'd like. But it's really amazing to see just the techniques and learn about the percentages they use or the times or how do they shape this. And it's really cool to just use that. I think that that's a resource available now that was definitely not available when I first started. So you can look out for me on social media. I'm on Instagram at Matthew James Duffy. Um, I've just recently started a YouTube channel where I'll be showing more tips and tricks. And that's also Matthew James Duffy. Um, and finally, I've been playing around with this funny little app called TikTok. And you can use the at Matthew James Duffy to find me there as well. My website's MatthewJamesDuffy.com. I have a number of information listed there. I share some resources, some of the products that I like to use. And I'm currently working on a series of videos and recipes that I'll be uploading to the website. So, Greg, a few things stand out to me from from Matthew's talk. One is he is definitely a note taker like you. He is a journaler. That seems to be a part of his success. Matthew talks about sourdough being both satisfying and humbling. Do you identify with those descriptions? I couldn't. I, I agree with so much of what he said. I mean, I don't know about you, but I like the magic is still there. You know, like I think thousands of loaves and every time i pull my dutch oven out of out of the oven and take that lid off getting ready to see the rise or the hopeful rise that is in hopeful that loaf. yes i still i still get excited i was baking bread over the weekend and i was mentioning that to my wife that i still i know like i know that it's going to turn out I, I just i'm still excited i'm genuinely excited and thrilled to see this loaf and he mentioned fellowship surrounding bread. Uh, I think that is also very important. Definitely, I'm a, I'm a bit of a shut-in, so I may not uh, interact with the community as, as widely as others may, but uh, it definitely is something that is shared and people enjoy and is a focal point for communion. And I, I love that about it as well. You know, what I was thinking as I was listening to Matthew was one of the points you had made earlier, Greg, and, and I think you were talking about it in terms of shaping. There's so many different approaches that people can take to it. Uh, but Matthew talks in his discussion of traveling and working in different bakeries and meeting different people. He just loves that there's so many different approaches to sourdough generally. And I think that's part of the community, right? You compare notes. This is what I do. That's the same as you. But wow, that's something I've never seen before. Tell me about it. Yeah, there's no right or wrong way to do it. I mean, Burning it, I think, is the wrong way to do it. Like if you, if you burn your bread, that's, that's probably the wrong way to. But I mean, everything else aside from that, if it's edible, it's it's bread. And I mean, my initial loaves are, I mean, objectively horrible. But 
<laughs> still edible and I enjoyed them and they satisfied me. So was it worth it? Absolutely. A hundred percent. And that, that is definitely that I, something that I absolutely love about bread. I have a couple of friends who uh, run a small bakery on Salt Spring Island. And I remember the first time I went over to do a bake day with them. It was so humbling to me to see people who had expressed, you know, looking at my content and saying, oh, you know, this was inspirational. I like the way you did this, or I like the way your bread looks. And then to in return, go and be in their bakery and watch what they're doing and just be surprised and amazed at like their process. And I mean, I, I'm a big advocate for you can learn something from anybody and it doesn't matter who they are and what they, their experience level is, but then also that definitely extends into baking. There are so many ways to do it. And so many people have so many different experiences with bread. If you keep an open mind, you're, you're going to continue to grow in the most wildly un unexpected ways. I think that's a great way to wrap up our talk about Matthew's recording for us. And let's move on to our final guest for the day. And we're going to hear now from Myra Maston. And Myra is the head baker at Ubuntu Canteen, uh, of course, in our mutual hometown of Vancouver. Hi, my name is Myra Maston, and I'm the head baker at Ubuntu Canteen in Vancouver, where we make a variety of pastries and sourdough breads. Having worked in kitchens for the past 18 years, I guess sourdough bread slowly worked its way into my life, first as a hobby, then an obsession, and then into a career. My tip for new bakers would be, don't give up. You will have many funky loaves in the beginning. So take lots of notes, like the temperature, how many folds, time of bulk fermentation, etc. And over time, you'll learn and develop a feel for bread. At the bakery, we are constantly adjusting for the elements. With no air conditioning, every day we adjust the recipe accordingly. Never assume because one day the bread turned out nice that the next time it will be the same. One of the best things sourdough has taught me is about patience in life and with bread. You can't rush bread. If you do, it will show you your mistake eventually. And it is very frustrating to put three days into a loaf and have it ruined by a lack of patience. Thank you. You can find our bread at 26th and Fraser Street, Vancouver, and on Instagram at Ubuntu Bakes. So, Greg, here we have another note taker. I'm really going to have to start a bread journal, which I, I will confess I have not yet done. But I am now I am now convinced of the utility of it because I hear from great baker after great baker that this is a great thing to do. I love Myra's advice around don't give up, right? Like just keep moving forward. That's something we've been discussing. You're going to have, she calls them funky loaves. I agree. I've made some, some funky loaves in my time. And, and Myra talks about something we've touched on already, the physical environment, no air conditioning. And really you just have to be ready to deal with that every time you bake. hundred percent persistence and uh, patience. Two things I couldn't agree with more. She's absolutely right about that. You, you're going to get better through persistence, uh, as with anything in life, but especially sourdough. And also just rolling with the punches. I bake bread in restaurants, too, where you have limited fridge space or your fridges go down or anything can go wrong. And you still need to produce something. So learning, learning to be dynamic in situations like that will inevitably make you a better baker. I've also I've never met uh, I've never met her in person, but um, I'm a huge fan. Like I, their bakery is down the street from me. And if I don't have time to bake, that is where I go to buy bread. I think, I think she's a phenomenal baker and I think everything she does is great. I'm almost intimidated, which <laughs> sounds straight, sounds strange. Like I've been in there while she's been behind the counter and I've never introduced myself and it seems a little silly now, but 
yeah, no, just every everything that their their bread shelf looks gorgeous every morning. It's it's such a joy to see. It fills me with so much warmth when I stare at like this product and this expression of a team of people who are working hard. Kudos to you. Absolutely. And you know exactly what she's going through, what she and her team are going through to produce that. So I, I hope that our discussion and our guests on today's episode will convey a bit of that to people who a, are new to sourdough and might be considering taking it on as a hobby, which I highly recommend everybody do. If you're interested, give it a try. And also gives people a little context and maybe some appreciation for what goes into those gorgeous loaves that are sitting on the shelf when you walk down the street, right? It is a whole lot of work. Yeah, absolutely. And next time you're you're at your grocery store and you're thinking about buying that Dempster's, think about think about maybe picking this up, you know? It's it's something that you that anybody can learn. It's not prohibitively difficult. It just takes time and patience. And uh, the results are well worth it, I would I would argue. Couldn't agree more. Well, Greg, listen, I'm going to let you go for now. Thank you for being co-host on this episode. Thanks in advance for co-hosting our upcoming Sourdough 2.0, where we will hear from Maurizio, who you mentioned of The Perfect Loaf, and a couple of other guests as well. Can't wait to talk to you again. Thanks for being here. Amazing. Thanks for having me. This was a blast. What a fun way to spend some time with the world of sourdough. Thank you to Myra, to Matthew, and to Nicole. I really appreciate all of you taking part in this episode. And, of course, big thanks to my friend Greg. I I really miss working with Greg, so this was a really fun way to reconnect. I'm glad we'll be doing it again soon. Thank you for being here, too. It means a lot to me. There are a whole lot of podcasts out there. And I'm really happy you're spending some time with me here on Cheftimony. As always, I love to hear from you. So if you've got a question or a comment for the show, perhaps a guest suggestion or a topic suggestion, please get in touch. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. That's all at Cheftimony. On LinkedIn, you can find me under my own name. That's Graham McLennan. And you can always just send me an email. That goes to graham at Cheftimony.com. All right, that is all for this week, for episode 45, for Sourdough episode 1.0. Thank you for being here. I'm Graham McLennan, and I'll see you two Fridays from now, right here on Chef Demoni.